The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. It was about the time when I was seven or eight years old. And my mother used to shop at a grocery store by the name of Big Apple. How many of you remember the Big Apple? Not many of you. Not New York, but it was Big Apple. And, you know, they place those racks at the checkout counter and they're filled with candy bars and all kinds of snacks and, and bubble gum. And the reason they put them there is because they know little snotty-nosed kids like me will get there, be tempted by it, and pull on and tug on Mama until she buys something for us there. Well, that particular day, I was struck by the box of bazooka bubble gum. Yeah. I think it was about a penny a piece back then. And so I asked my mom, pulled on her cloak or whatever, and I'm holding a piece of bubble gum, and I'm saying, Mom, can I please have a piece of bubble gum? My, it's only one cent. And she was persistent in saying, no. <laughs> well, mother said no, and somehow or another, there was this thing that crept up in me, and it said, Mama said no, but there is another way. And so I took that piece of bazooka bubble gum and I staffed it, stuffed it down in my Sears and Roebuck blue jeans, right? And we went out of the store and I felt victorious because I had overridden my mother's policy and I had stolen that piece of bazooka bubble gum. So we get home, and my mother unpacks all of the groceries, and I said, Mom, I've got to, I'm going to go outside and play. And so I had that piece of bubble gum in my pocket, man, and it's just burning a hole. And I go down the front steps of the house, and we had these big bushes that were there. And I had a little trail, my brothers and I, that were behind the bushes. So I went behind the bushes, and I knelt down, and they were good, thick, evergreen bushes, and nobody could see me. And I took that bazooka bubble gum, and I unwrapped it, didn't read the comic strip okay I know put the bubble gum in my mouth and you know bazooka goes out pretty quick the flavor's not there but before the flavor could even be gone all of a sudden I was overwhelmed with this huge sense of guilt I'd stolen bubble gum and and the bazooka didn't taste as good as I thought it would so I grabbed a stick and I dug a hole there in the dirt and I took the wrapper and wadded it up as tight as I could and put it in there and threw the bubble gum in and covered it back over and by the time I got into the house and into the kitchen where my mother was I'm just in tears Mama! and I confessed the whole thing to her and she looked at me and said, well, son, I'm glad you're being honest with me, but you're still going to get a whipping. <laughs> what was happening was my conscience. That God-given thing that God has given to each and every one of us. It, the conscience is, is a gift to us, really. Because it's in that conscience where God has given us the ability that we know, as he says in Romans chapter 2, that he has written the law of God on our hearts. And whether one is born again or they're unregenerate, they've not come to Christ, they all have a conscience. Paul goes on to explain in that passage that the Gentiles have a conscience. 
And although they don't have the written law of God that the Jews have to help them to discern what is right or wrong, God has written it on the hearts of the Gentile, the unregenerate. So we all have a conscience. And it is that conscience that, that works on our behalf or for our benefit that when we're faced with a decision in life, whatever the decision is, it's the conscience that tells us what is the right decision and what's the wrong decision. It's the conscience that bears witness that our actions are right or our motives are right. Or it's the conscience that says, hey, your motives or your actions are wrong. It, it renders a verdict, if you will, right? I've come to realize that, that in our lives, if, if one lives their life recognizing the conscience that the conscience does not make us do what is right and the conscience does not make us do what is wrong. Agreed? We all have a choice in it, don't we? And if we choose to listen to the conscience that God has placed there, where His law is written in our lives, and, and we follow that conscience and do what is right, the, the natural result of that is that we honor God and there are generally greater blessings in our lives if we follow that witness in our conscience that's a Godward witness. On the other hand, if we choose to ignore the conscience and when the law of God that's written on our hearts says, no, this is wrong, and we choose to continue to ignore that conscience as we go on in our life, we listen to the conscience less and less, and the conscience becomes more dull, and we can wreck our entire lives and those around us, right? So we have a choice. And that answers the question, what is the conscience? So the conscience is something that God has given us where His law is written on our hearts and it enables us to know what's right and what's wrong. And let me reiterate and reemphasize, everybody has a conscience. And let me ask the question of us this morning in light of what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 24. What's the condition of your conscience? What's the condition of my conscience today? It's an important question. It's that thing that Paul encourages us to do a number of times in Scripture that he tells us to examine ourselves, to look introspective. <laughs> like me, you look in, for intro, in perspective and there's really nothing there, right? But it's where we examine ourselves and look inside. What's happening here? What's taking place in my conscience? And in this passage that we're going to see this morning as Paul is standing before the governor of Judea, Felix, and charges are being brought against him, he's making his defense. He makes a statement in chapter 24 before Felix the governor, and he says, I go to great pains to make sure that I live my life with a clean or a clear conscience before God and before man. And the question for me is, do I take pains in my life 
to live before God and before men with a clear conscience. And as Paul says that, he kind of brings to mind what Jesus said, all of the law can be summed up in two commands, right? And the first is like this, that that you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And the second is like the first, and it's a great command, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul is saying is, look, in fulfilling the great command, I'm living my life with a clean conscience, and I take great pains to examine myself to see that I'm living in a good conscience before God and before men as well. Some of you may be too young to remember this, or maybe you've seen the movie, but, you know, there was a time in our culture where we understood conscience, right? But we're living in a culture and an age today where conscience has been so seared and so defamed or deformed, in a sense, because of what's fed the conscience of a nation or maybe an individual that, boy, it's hard to really know what is right and what is wrong. And we're living in a day in a culture where someone would say, I'm living by a good conscience, and that conscience has been conditioned by the culture around them. And it seems as though the voice of God and the Word of God just becomes more and more diminished. And let me say this, if you're here today born again, it can happen to you as well. Let's take a look. Let's take a reminiscent back at some years ago of what would have been prominent in our culture that speaks to this conscience. I'm going to mess up your mind for the rest of the day because the little song that we're about to play is going to be ringing and reverberating in your head as you watch tonight's Super Bowl game. Ronnie, show us this clip. That's it? Come on now. Let's see Now, let's take a poll. How many of you have seen that movie? We even have some honest ones right here. Great movie. But there's a fallacy to the song, and that's this. That 
God's intent was that our conscience would always be our guide, but there is a danger depending on how our conscience is conditioned in the way we live our lives as to whether or not our conscience can be our guide. Now let's go to Acts chapter 24. Let me just kind of set the scene for you. We don't have time to read the passage. But remember the last time we'd seen that Paul was there with those F. those elders from Ephesus and he was going to be going on Jerusalem they warned him don't go to Jerusalem because they're going to try to kill you and and Paul says look I must go to Jerusalem because I know the Holy Spirit's leading me there and sure enough as Paul gets to Jerusalem he goes there to the temple he's purified himself and he's worshiping God there in the temple and there are Jews that see him and they grab him and they incite all kinds of things against him they drag him out and they begin to lay hands on him which is another way of saying they were giving Paul a good beat down Paul's rescued by Uh, by the Roman soldiers that are there to keep a riot for happening. And then he finds himself under arrest and charges are being brought against him. And he appeals and he says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't flog me. And when they recognize that he's a Roman citizen, fast forward, they say, well, you know, we're going to take him to Felix the governor and have him give his case before Felix the governor. And so there's a courtroom setting that's a literal courtroom that's taking place. And like any other courtroom, there are three predominant figures that you have involved. Number one, you have the prosecutor, right? He's the one that's pleading the case to say why this person is, is, is guilty. And there's the prosecutor that's there, and he most likely was hired by the Jews, and he was crooked himself, and he was a Gentile, and he's going to present all the lies that are against Paul. And then you have Paul that's there in the courtroom, and Paul gives his defense and say, look, these charges can't be validated that have been brought against me. They're all lies. And so Paul is taken there in the courtroom, and the judge... The judge, it wasn't Judge Judy, it was Judge Felix. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm being drugged into court, I want to make sure that I have a good judge, right? An honest, a fair judge, and, and Felix was anything other than honest. As a matter of fact, Felix was an adulterer. Felix had once been a slave. Um, he, had, he had risen to his prominence because his brother had been and the slave of Cornelius, who later became the emperor of Rome, and he was appointed this position, a very politically heavy position. He was a ruthless man. As a matter of fact, he would, he would uh, indulge himself on others to, to steal their money from them. He would threaten other opposing individuals to the party and even have them killed if he couldn't quieten them. Felix was a, was a dishonest judge. And then there in the courtroom also was his, was his wife, Drusillus. And she was a wicked woman. As a matter of fact, she was a great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. You remember the Herod that had all the little children in Bethlehem killed? She was the daughter of... Herod, who in Acts chapter 12, we find he was taken out because he had defamed God in that sense. And just at the young age of 18, after she had been given in marriage to a king of the area of Syria, she goes to another area where Felix is, and Felix desired her. She desires to sleep with Felix and have adultery. She divorces her one husband and goes with Felix, all for the reason that would have given her more prominence and power. 
great woman. And so here Paul is in his court. But in the middle of this, as the charges are being brought against Paul, Paul in his defense makes a statement again. He says, listen, I go to great pains to have a clear conscience before God and before man. Now let's, let's focus on that phrase for just a minute. I go to great pain in order to have a clear conscience. What's Paul saying when he says, I go to great pain? Is, is Paul saying, listen, I live a legalistic life so I can have a clear conscience before God and for man? No, what he's saying is, listen, I, I'm very diligent in my life to examine my life, and as best as I know what God desires of me, that I might live a life that is worthy of representing His name. I'm going to make sure that, boy, as far as I know, there's nothing I'm hanging on to and wanting to participate in that I know is opposed to God's righteousness so that when I go before God, I have a clear conscience. You see, one of the things I've learned in the Christian life that keeps me from going to God is I want to hold on to things that I know are not pleasing to God. And that guilty conscience can... You realize that's one of the greatest tools of the enemy in the life of the believer... Because if he can get us to continue to live in those patterns and not have a desire to go before God and to have a clean conscience, then he gets us in that cycle of guilt and condemnation and there's no way and he has us defeated there in the Christian life. But Paul says, look, I go to great pains to live before God and men with a clear conscience. And so I asked the question as I looked at this text, who is the one who has a clear conscience. And so as we look at this, this together this morning, this is some identifying ways that we can determine whether or not we have a clear conscience. And the first one is this. To answer the question, who is the one with a clear conscience? And first of all, I would say that it begins at that point of knowing that we know that we know that we have been justified before God through Jesus Christ. Well, you see, there's not a one of us in this room, apart from Christ, could ever stand before God with a clear conscience. Amen? And you may be here this morning, and, and you're plagued by things from in your conscience, maybe from things in the past, and maybe plagued in your conscience from things in the present, but for some reason... You feel as though you can't go before God with that. And listen, the starting place and starting point of knowing that we can have a clear conscience starts with the precious blood of Jesus that was shed so that we might be cleansed of a guilty conscience. There's a story of Martin Luther and whether or not it was a vision that he was encountering at the time or a dream but the dream goes like this, that he had seen himself before God in the throne room of God and at the judgment seat of God, and there along with him and God in that place was Satan himself next to him. 
And Satan was given opportunity to speak, and as Satan was speaking, he began to list numerous sin after sin after sin after sin, sins of the conscience, sins of the heart, and sins of the will that Martin Luther had committed. And Martin Luther interrupted Satan in the middle of him rattling all of this list off to him, and he said, you have forgotten one entry that you haven't read off. And Satan said, what is that one entry that I've left off and he's quoted scripture when he said the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin if you're here this morning and you've been born again you've accepted Christ then the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from all sin can somebody say hallelujah for that you see it's cleansed us you see the writer in the book of Hebrews as he was comparing the old law, the system of cleansing as it was given in the Levitical law, had talked about blood, the blood of bulls and goats that had to be sacrificed in the temple day after day after day and annually when all the sins were laid on that escape goat and the, the priest goes into the Holy of Holies to make an atonement for the sacrifice of the people's sin, realizing that it was only a temporary atonement. He says this in Hebrews chapter 9 as as he writes this letter to them, looking at that, saying that the gifts and the sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What do we get from that? That there's no righteous act that you or I can ever do to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. There's no perfect attendance in Sunday school or small group that can cleanse us from a guilty conscience. There's no amount of money that you or I can put in the offering plate that can cleanse us from a guilty conscience. There's no manner of quiet times that you and I can have that can cleanse us from a guilty conscience. In other words, to be cleansed from a guilty conscience is not meeting a to-do list. To be cleansed from a guilty conscience is recognizing, as he goes on to say in verse 14, that how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Aren't you glad that the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from a guilty conscience? He goes on to say this in verse 22 of chapter 10. He says, in light of that, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So number one, the way of having a clear conscience is to recognize that Jesus' blood if we've appropriated it and accepted it as a payment for our sins, is sufficient to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Number two is this. We see this in this passage in Acts chapter 24. Is one who have a clear conscience is one who fears God and the coming resurrection. You see, as Paul was dialoguing with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, Paul spoke to them about righteousness. Paul spoke to them about the requirements of the law. And Paul spoke to them about the coming judgment of God. That there will be a day where all of us stand before Him. And if we're trying to plead our case based on our merits, we're doomed. But the only case we can plead is the blood of Jesus. 
So to have a fear of God, a recognition that there's a day where we're all going to give account for this light. The third thing is one who obeys God. Paul goes on to say that in every way, not only has he lived before God and man with a clear conscience, but as best as he knows, he has been obedient to God and the requirements that he calls us to or the expectation that he calls us to in living our lives given over to him. He has obeyed God. Paul would later or had earlier penned the words in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we're to present our bodies, our whole being, to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, and this is your reasonable act of worship. In other words, Paul is saying, look, in every way that I know, I presented my life before God. Does that mean that Paul didn't on occasion mess up? Does that mean that you and I on occasion don't mess up? We do. What is it that cleanses us from our sins in a guilty conscience? The blood of Jesus. Fourthly, the way that we can see that we have a clean conscience is one who repents of sin. And this word repent is really not a popular word anymore, right? You see, word repent just simply means to acknowledge that the direction I'm going is the wrong direction and I need to turn around. I need to have a change of mind and turn back towards. It's not necessarily turning away from something, but it's turning towards God. The Bible is very clear in John where he says, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I like what somebody said about confessing our sins that they like to keep in a short they like to keep a short account with God. And what they meant by that was daily they've come before God and said God examine me. And show me, are, are there any things in me? Are there any attitudes? Are there any motivations in me that are not pleasing to you? God, show me so that I might acknowledge them and turn from them. And God, I'm sure, I know that as I confess those sins to you, you are faithful, God, and you will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad you got a daddy you can go to that doesn't turn you away? Lastly, it's the one who trusts in God. When I, when I think of Paul in this situation, I think if I had been Paul, I would have tried to, tried to do everything I could do to get out of the situation in other means and ways than God had miraculously moved Paul. And it's in those times that we're in stressful situations it's in those times that we know that in order to be obedient to God, in order to have a clear conscience, sometimes we're going to have to hold fast and make decisions that are going to bring difficulty on us rather than allowing us to escape the situation. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul writes of these situations where we find ourselves in often where 
there's great temptation to either pay attention to our conscience and do the right thing or try to escape that and do the thing that will cause us less pain. And he says this to us when we're faced with those. He says in verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. You know why I love this verse? Because I can be free at talking about my temptation. You know why? Because every man in this room has been tempted in the same way that I have. He says, there's no temptation that's taken you except which is common to man. And then I love this second part. But God is faithful. And He will provide with the temptation a way of escape. Isn't that great? That God will provide a way of escape from that area of temptation. Let's wrap this up by answering this question. How do we apply all this in our life? In other words, how do we keep a clean conscience? What are some things that we need to do in order to have that clear conscience? Some of them are common sense, but let me go over them anyway. Number one, how do, how do we apply this? Number one is this, that we keep a clear conscience. <laughs> Sounds almost redundant, doesn't it? And what I mean by that is that we quickly acknowledge our fault, our temptation, our sin, and turn to Him. That relieves the guilty conscience, right? Number two is this, that we keep an informed conscience. This is one that's very important. And just recently, I had, I had gotten involved in, careful how I say that, <laughs> I had gotten involved in, in watching a series of, of programs on Netflix that were pretty cool. I, I, I love mafia stuff. Anybody else with me? Okay. This is a Colombian mafia. But as I watched the series, I began to recognize and see that, boy, there were just some things that were not edifying. There were, there were some things that were causing my mindset to shift where I knew they were wrong, but I thought, well, you know, maybe in the situation. Anybody else have been there with me? And man... I couldn't, I couldn't bear it. And, 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 you know, God's like, man, you just need to scrub the series. And I'm like, but I'm seven into it. You know, I got to see the end. You see, I can allow the world's perspective to shape my conscience. Or I can allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to shape my conscience. And so the lesson in that is, man, whatever we might be faced with in life, that we recognize, man, there's just not, you know, God's not bearing witness in, with, with me in this. And I need to turn from this. I need to stop doing this. I need to shut this off. Even if the Super Bowl tonight is messing with your brain, shut it off. Turn from it. Saturate yourself in the Word of God and yield to the Holy Spirit of God. And can I say this? Sunday mornings is not enough. You see, daily, I, I need to be in the Word of God. Daily, you need to be in the Word of God. Because that quick, a 
because of our propensity towards the flesh, it's easy to justify those things that we know are not right. Number three is this, beware of a seared conscience. Paul writes to Timothy and Titus on this, and he's talking about those who have infiltrated the church and they're teaching wrong things and leading other people astray and leading them into acts that are just contrary to the Word of God. And he says, listen, they have, gained, they have gotten a seared conscience. And he's talking about people who had been exposed to the Word of God. He's talking about people who had been active and a part of the body of Christ in the church. But somehow or another, they stopped listening to that and they began to believe lies and they followed in that. And sooner or later, as time went on, they gained a seared conscience. You see, I've also found that the more habitually you or I might practice something or ignore something, the longer we ignore God bearing witness in our conscience, the easier it is for our conscience to become seared and soon we're accepting things that we know are contrary to the Word of God and then accepting those things turns to participating in those things. I don't know about you. Man, I don't want to go down that road. Amen. It's a voice that bears witness in our conscience that says, you know, the way you treated that person just really wasn't right. Several weeks ago, I remember, maybe it was longer than that, I remember I had I'd been a little harsh with Sandy. <laughs> She's shocked. She can't, she can't imagine that. I think I was treating her like she was a seaman in the Navy and I was a petty officer and she was supposed to follow my orders, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Later, God just wouldn't let me let go of this. And so I went back to her and I said, you know, honey, I was a little out of line. She says, you think? <laughs> That seems like such a minor thing. But can I propose to you that the minor things can easily turn into the major things? So wherever it is in our lives that the Holy Spirit speaks to our conscience and says, you know what? I will use in the first person, J-Mo, you're being a bonehead. Okay, Acknowledge it. Trust Him. Receive His forgiveness. At the close of Paul's life, after this instance takes place here in Acts chapter 24 and 28, he finds himself in prison again. And he's writing his last letter to the son of his faith, Timothy, and in that letter he writes this statement. He says, Timothy, I fought the fight. I finished the race. That phrase, I fought the fight, or the combination of two of the same word, I've agoniaed the agonia. Those are the Greek words there, and I'm not trying to impress you with Greek, but there's an understanding there of the word fight and fault. Because the word picture that was used for that Greek word agonia has the idea of a 
Greek athlete who had spent their whole life training for one shot at the Olympic Games. And they had the mindset that when they went onto the game field, when they went into their arena, that they knew this was their only shot. They vested their whole lives into it, and doggone it, when they get on the field, whether they win or lose, they're going to know that they go off the field having expended every bit of their energy so as to gain victory and also to have a clear and clean conscience that they've done the best that they could do. I want to say at the end of my life, man, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. And I want to live life between this point to whenever that day is, having the joy to be able to say what Paul said. Boy, I've, I've gone to every pain. I, I've, I've, I've gone to great pain to live my life with a clear conscience before God Amen. Because, folks, I've lived my life even as a Christian without a clear conscience. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.